Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. That's where we are. This is session number 18 of the War of the Jewels. And tonight, we are finishing the War of the Jewels. That's what's happening. Um, we have a lot of slides to do, the number of which I am embarrassed to disclose to you before the beginning of the class, but we'll see how we do. Because um, we're going to finish tonight. That is what is happening. Um, quick reminder that the next live session will be on Wednesday, the 20th of September. Yes, 20th. That is the correct number. Uh, Wednesday, the 20th of September, when we will begin our discussion of Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Um, a uh, uh, Just a fascinating and unusual book. Um, so, uh, and as I've said before, the be by, uh, by a goodly measure, in my opinion, um, the greatest work of fiction that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Paralandra is pretty good too, but Till We Have Faces is really head and shoulders. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and yes, you are right, uh, First Fish, that uh, uh, that day, the 20th of September, will be uh, just before the weekend of Cascade Moot, our first ever regional moot in the Pacific Northwest, which will be uh, a great deal of fun. So, um, but anyway, let us swiftly jump in. Okay, so remember we were going through um, the uh, the 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 Quendi and Eldar section, you know, part four of the War of the Jewels, and I was just kind of cherry picking, shamelessly cherry picking, not trying to follow um, the entire drift of the discussion, um, definitely not trying to explain or make sense for you, um, if any of you needed that, which I assume you did because I did too, of. Um, uh, of the the sort of the whole linguistic reasoning and and his uh, his his discussions of the of the language elements, because it was hard for me to follow. This is not my specialty, and I did not follow it all. So what we're doing instead is we are going through and we are cherry picking. We are looking at moments in the story, um, moments that struck me as interesting or important, that show us some things. Either that show us things about his story, about what he's thinking about his story, where he's in, where he is with his world building in these moments, and in particular, that uh, that are are kind of revelatory of the ways in which the story and you know story and language are really tied together. Um, and emerge together in tandem in Tolkien's mind. Um, so, um, uh, anyway, so that is um, uh, that is uh, that is what we're going to be focusing on. Um, so we're going to be reading a bunch of little snippets um, with like just interesting nuggets to take. So I don't have an overall, uh, you know, sort of argument to make. I, I'm, again, I'm not trying to follow the overall trend of what he's talking about. Um, we're just going to look at, we started doing this last time, and we're going to look at a whole bunch of cool stuff together um, that I find interesting in various ways. And of course, if um, uh, I assume that if I also chose a few passages that show some interesting things about what Tolkien is thinking about the concept of the frame story of the Silmarillion at this time, that you wouldn't be surprised that I did that. So, okay, let us uh, let us jump straight back in. Okay, so you'll remember all the stuff about the Avari, you know, the, the, when we were looking at the words for the Avari and the words for those who left, and we were beginning to see how in the in the shift of the words that they used, in, in the, the assignment of words, um, and in the shift of words, we're beginning to see the narratives emerging, right? Remember how uh, the root word of Avari is Ab or Abba, 
right? Which means no, <clears throat> right? To to deny, to express unwillingness for something, to um, you know, state clearly that your will is set against that thing, right? Or even to try to prevent someone else from doing something that they want to do. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, it's, and, and that was, of course, one example that we were looking at. Uh, so tonight, we're going to begin by uh, looking at some of the uh, the Caliquendi and Moraquendi talk, of course, uh, these words make it into the published Silmarillion, right? That the Caliquendi means the light elves and the Moraquendi means the dark elves. Um, and it's used, what we are told in the Silmarillion and what most, you know, Tolkien fans who read the Silmarillion and, and, uh, and you know, kind of uh, uh, familiarize themselves with the nomenclature, right? What they, what they kind of, uh, uh, you know, go on thinking about this is simply, you know, Caliquendi means those who are from Valinor, right? Uh, you know, who went to Valinor, who went, who you know, who were in Valinor in the light of the trees, and the Moraquendi means the dark elves who never saw Valinor during the light of the trees, right? Okay, so here's what we're being, how these ideas are being developed here. There also existed two old compounds containing Quendi, Caliquendi and Moraquendi, the light folk and the dark folk. These terms appear to go back to the period before the separation. Wrap your mind around that for a second. The separation, of course, being, uh, you know, at Quivienen, right? Um, so prior to the migration, the concept of Caliquendi and Moraquendi already existed before any of the elves had gone to the light of Valinor, right? Okay. These terms appear to go back to the period before the separation, or rather, to the time of the debate among the Quendi concerning the invitation of the Valar. They were evidently made by the party favorable to Orome, and referred originally to those who desired the light of Valinor, where the ambassadors of the elves reported that there was no darkness, and those who did not wish for a place in which there was no night. But already before the final separation, Moraquendi may have referred to the glooms and the clouds dimming the sun and the stars during the war of the Valar and Melkor, so that the term from the beginning had a tinge of scorn, implying that such folk were not averse to the shadows of Melkor upon Middle-earth. So from the beginning, um, the, the, the term Moraquendi was... was throwing shade at it's a it was a it was a, it was a polemical word it was a word used in debate to describe people who don't agree with us and don't think like us right we think we are favorable to orame right the people who came up with these terms we are favorable to orame and we desire that we've heard of the light of valinor and we desire it so we are going to call ourselves the the caliquendi the light folk the people who like the light and by extension, therefore, those who don't agree with us, those who are the avari, the unwilling, right, the prohibitors, right, they are the ones who are, um, uh, they're the ones, they, they like the darkness, apparently. They prefer the darkness. With this almost, not quite all the way to a moral accusation against them, not calling them evil, exactly, um, but that tinge of scorn implying that such folk were not averse to the shadows of Melkor upon Middle-earth. Um, yeah, that's, um, that's remarkable, right? Um, that's, I think that that is very interesting. Because again, when we get these terms 
in 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 the Silmarillion or in the published Silmarillion. Um, you know, the way that that word is used, it describes and it tends to be used to describe the exiles after their return. And what it's describing is like a perceptible difference, we're told, right? That there is something just different about the elves who were in Valinor in the light of the trees and they come back. So it's... We're almost led to believe. Um, and I'm being cautious here because I'm not remembering the wording of the passage. Um, but I... I think that there are places where it's used where it's more than a little bit implied that the distinction between light elves and dark elves is something that was forced upon people by perceiving the differences, right? And everyone could tell when the Noldor came back that there was something different, right? Um, That those who had been in the light of Valinor were just, you know, objectively altered by that experience. Parallel to, of course, the way that the four traveler hobbits are transformed by their experience. They stand out when they come back to the Hobbit too, right? Lordly, people call them, meaning nothing but good, right? Um, they can't hide it. They can't hide what has happened to them. They're different because of their encounters, because of their experiences um, in that wider world. And that same phenomenon seems to be true of the Calaquendi, right? So again, the implication, at least, is that the term Calaquendi emerges because, like, we need a way to describe this difference, right? The difference between um, uh, the the difference between the the you know those elves over there and those elves over there who are obviously different, right? But no, he says it goes it goes way back. Um, why does it go? Where does this story come from? Where does this story? Why does he date it back to the before the separation? Linguistically, right? Because of how the words are formed, it shows like you can tell by the words that they're old forms of these words, right? Had this emerged, had these terms emerged later on, they'd have been different, right? And so. The story of the circumstances of how there, of how these terms emerged, come from the very nature of the words themselves. Right, it's implicit in it, um, and you can see how Tolkien is discovering the story here. Right, um, but already before the final separation, Moraquendi may have referred to. Right, given, given the, uh, the linguistic conditions of this word. It seems to have emerged from this era at this time. Given that it did, why? Why did it? What's the story there? How did that happen? Why did it make sense? Why did they use these words at this time? And the story the story comes out. Right? The story comes out. Um, okay, let's keep going. In the period of exile, the Njoldor, I'll, I'll try to do that. This is, we can tell this is later, right? Because he's doing his tilde thing with the Njoldor. The Njoldor modified their use of these terms, which was offensive to the Sindar. Kalaquendi went out of use. So 
the Noldor calling themselves Calaquendi was offensive, right? Like calling everybody else dark. And of course, I am sure you're also remembering those moments in the Silmarillion when the word dark elf is used in what is clearly an unflattering way, right? Whether it's Caranthir talking about this dark elf, by which he means Thingol, right? Which is insulting in more than one way, because of course Thingol did in fact see the light of Valinor. Or, or when you've got... Um, uh, you know, Kurafin talking to Aeol, right, and all that stuff. Um, but um, um, I know it's it's not a Spanish tilde. It's an NG. I know. That's why I'm trying to say it Njoldor. I'm, I'm trying to do the NG thing. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's what I'm attempting to do. I'm just not good at it. Um, uh, Njoldor. Njoldor. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it does not come naturally to me. Anyway, okay, so understandably, and as we can see in the stories that we know, um, yeah, I know it's like the name Ingold. Um, oh, Ingold, I see. You're saying with a hard G, Ingoldor. No, I can't do that. Um, never mind. Not going to worry about it. Not going to worry about my. I, I shall overcome my own limitations later. Okay. So the Noldor stopped using it out of politeness, right? Because it offended the Sindar, understandably. Calaquendi went out of use. Except in written Noldoran lore, Moraquendi was now applied to all other elves, except the Noldor and Sindar, that is, to Avari or to any kind of elves that at, that at the time of the coming of the Noldor had not long dwelt in Beleriand and were not subjects of Elway. Okay, so... It's insulting to call the Sindar Moraquendi, so we're going to stop calling them Moraquendi. Instead, we're just going to call non-Sindar Dark Elves Moraquendi instead, right? So, Avari, or any of the other elves hadn't, that hadn't dwelt in Beleriand, that, that were newcomers to Beleriand and not subjects of Elway. So, like the Green Elves, they still count, right? We can still call them Moraquendi, at least. Um, okay. Uh... It was never applied, however, to any but elvish peoples. The old distinction, when made, was represented by the new terms Amanyar, those of Amman, and Uamanyar, or Umanyar, those not of Amman, besides the longer forms Amaneldi and Umaneldi. Um, so, once again, you may remember how um, uh, Umanyar is a name that gets used in the Silmarillion, but it's like in a list. Of um, like it's given as an alternative form, but we're not told why it's an alternative. Like what the point of the alternative form is. It's in one of those passages which, frankly, make it difficult for a lot of modern people successfully to get through the Silmarillion. That is, those passages where he's just giving not only names but lists of alternative names for things, without very much context for the alternatives. Um, and so it's a, a, so it sounds like just like a memorization exercise and people get confused. Um, but um, anyway, so, but now we, we can begin to see why did the word umanyar come into usage? It's a politically correct version of Calaquendi and Moraquendi. Light elves and dark elves, that's, that's a pejorative distinction. Right? It's an offensive pejorative distinction, potentially. Right, So instead we go to the more neutral and purely descriptive um, those of Amman and those not of Amman. Everyone can agree on that, right? 
Like the Sindar aren't going to be offended if you say they're not from Amman because they're totally not, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And yes, Bjarnason, or even the Elvish languages have the euphemism treadmill. Yeah, yeah, that's what we see. And that's why I, that's one of the things that I find so interesting about this, right? We not only get um, the emergence of these different terms gives us an insight into a, a, um, an element of the social dynamics in Beleriand that isn't necessarily transparent in a lot of the published Silmarillion, right? Um, okay, here's another one. In the use of the exiles, Quenya naturally came to mean the language of the Noldor. So when the Noldor used the word Quenya, they were describing, they, they meant their own language, developed in Amman as distinct from other tongues, whether Elvish or not. But the Noldor did not forget its connection to the old word Quendi, and still regarded the name as implying Elvish, that is, the chief Elvish tongue, the noblest, and the one most nearly preserving the ancient character of Elvish speech. In other words, really, the Noldor always knew in their hearts that they were the ones who spoke real Elvish. And, uh, I mean, this, uh, uh, you know, not to offend anyone, but this sort of reminds me as an American, what you sometimes hear English people say about American dialects, right? Um, but, um, uh, uh, anyway, yeah, the, 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 this is, uh, you know, well, it's not exactly the King's Elvish, but right. It's something like that. Um, their Elvish is real Elvish, the original Elvish. The chief Elvish tongue, the noblest, um, the one most nearly preserving the ancient character of the Elvish speech. Um, and it's, um, um, it is not, it's not that this is wrong, I mean, it's not wrong, right? I mean, it, yes, probably true, probably true. Um, uh, well, okay. Most nearly preserving the ancient character of Elvish speech? Probably. Probably. Um, does that mean it's the noblest Elvish speech? Well, maybe. Maybe. Depends on your point of view. Is it the chief Elvish tongue? Well, definitely different opinions on that one, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, it's uh, this shows us something not just about the language of the Noldor, but about their um, um, their perspective on this, right? It's interesting. Bjarnasoner says that nowadays linguists violently reject the idea that conservatism is somehow better. Um, yes, apparently the Noldor would disagree with you on that point. Um, it's um, this is one of many passages. Uh, where Tolkien seems to me to kind of throw the Noldor under the bus a little bit, or uh, to put it differently, where he seems rather open about the fact that the Noldor were really quite full of themselves and that a certain amount of um, uh, arrogance and even snobbery seems to have been part of Noldorin culture, um, which is interesting to hear, right? It's, it's interesting to hear that note coming in again and again throughout this, 
Because, of course, most of the stories in the Silmarillion are told from the Noldor perspective. So we don't see it quite as much, right? Because we're seeing things through their eyes most of the time. Um, it's not that you can't tell in places that it's, you know, um, it's kind of... Uh, it, that it, you know that that's an issue, right? That that's present, but it's uh, it's interesting to see the way that he kind of keeps coming keeps coming back to this here. Um, Brick tells us there a distinction between the Quenya of the Noldor and the Vanyar at this point. Yes, um, and he talks about it a little bit. Um, we'll get to a tiny touch of that, but again, I can't explain it, so I'm not going to try. Um, okay. Uh, here's a longer passage, but more of the Calaquendi stuff. And this was really fascinating. So this is... Um, now, so remember how the way that he tends to structure these things when he's talking about a particular root you know, or stem, um, he'll talk about the Quenya version, then he'll talk about the Cinderin version or sometimes the Teleri version right, of it. Um, so, because um, remember, when the Teleri leave Middle-earth and go to Valinor, they don't speak the same language as the... No- like, their language departs from the Nolar, but it also departs from the other um, Teleri who stayed behind, right? So Sindarin, the language spoken by the people of Doriath and the language spoken by the people of Alqualande is not exactly the same anymore, because they were separated for a really long time, too. But anyway, okay, all right, all right. This is in this in the Sindarin section of the Calaquendi Moraquendi, right? So we heard about Calaquendi and Moraquendi and Quenya, which told us some about the Noldor and the as sort of you know their the euphemisms they began to use in order not to offend um their nevertheless obviously inferior cinder and cousin you know Sindar cousins right so um here is what we get about the usage of those terms in Sindarin. associated with these compounds were the two old words kalbin kelbin and morbin moirbin uh, so that with the calaquendi moraquendi compounds are what he's talking about so in in, in he talks about these two Sindarin words which were associated with Calaquendi and Moraquendi, so Calbin and Morbin. On the formal relation of these to Quenya, Calaquendi, and Moraquendi, see a different page. They had no references to elves, except by accident of circumstances. So they're not intrinsic describing elves' words, except some, you know, when occasionally they do, but that's not intrinsic to it. Kelbin retained what was, as has been said, probably its original meaning. All elves other than the Avari, and it included the Sindar. So, the root origin of Calbin and Morbin um, is, uh, and and you can see the the right the Calaquendi Moraquendi. You can see the the Cal and Mor roots, right? So, uh, you know the the Black Folk, right? Morbin, right? It's all there. Okay, so um, uh, Calbin and Morbin originally comes from the time of the separation. Right, so the the Avari are the Morbin, and everybody else who sets out on the journey are the Kelbin. Remember, these are Sindar words, so they include the Sindar in the Kelbin, in the in the the light elves, right? The light elves includes everybody who sets off to go towards the light, and those who stay by. So we already have a we, so the, the the root is the same, but its application is now different, right? Okay, Kelbin retained what was as has been said, probably its original meaning all elves other than the Avari, and it included the Sindar. It was, in fact, the equivalent, when one was needed, of the Quenya Eldar, Teleran Eloi. But it referred to elves on- but it referred to elves only, because no other people qualified for the title. Moirbin was similarly an equivalent for Avari, but that it did not 
mean only dark elves, is seen by its ready application to other incarnates when they later became known. So the term Morbin or 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 yeah, Morbin or Moirbin um, doesn't literally just mean dark elves. It means that it's uh, this becomes down to us and them, right? Um, when the us is everybody who set out on the journey and the them are them who stay behind. Why? Because they're the only other thems that they know. When they meet other thems, right? When they meet other people who are not themselves, right? Uh, other incarnates, when they meet humans, when they meet dwarves, they call them all Morbin. They're all them, right? They're all others. They're all strangers. Um, right, it's by its ready application to other incarnates when they later became known. By the Sindar, anyone dwelling outside Beleriand or entering their realm from outside was called a Morbin. The first people of this kind to be met were the Nandor, who entered East Beleriand over the passes of the mountains before the return of Morgoth. Soon after his return came the first invasions of his orcs from the north. Somewhat later, the Sindar became aware of Avari, who had crept in small and secret groups into Beleriand from the south. By the way, did you know that there were groups of Avari who lived in small and secret groups in Beleriand? Don't hear much about that in the Silmarillion, do you? Later came the men of the Three Houses, who were friendly, and later still men of other kinds. All these were at first recognized, every single one of them, were at first recognized, were at first acquaintance called Morbin. But when the Nandor were recognized as kinsfolk of Linder in origin and speech, as was still recognizable, they were received into the class of Kelvin. They became us instead of them, right? Okay, so the green elves are, they're, they're connected with us. So now they're Kelvin, but everybody else is still Morbin. The men of the three houses were also soon removed from the class of Morbin. They were given their own name, Edain, and were seldom actually called Kelbin, but they were recognized as belonging to this class, which became practically equivalent to peoples in alliance in the war against Morgoth. Everybody who's on our side is Kelbin. Everybody who's not on our side is Morbin. The Avari thus remained the chief examples of Morbin. Uh, wait a second. I thought there were some in Beleriand. Are they fighting for Morgoth? What, what, what are you suggesting? Any individual Avar who joined with or was admitted among the Sindar, it rarely happened, became a Kalban. But the Avari in general remained secretive, hostile to the Eldar, and untrustworthy, and they dwelt in hidden places in the deeper woods or in caves. Morbin, as applied to them, is usually translated Dark Elves, partly because Moriquendi in the Quenya of the exiled Noldor usually referred to them. See what he's doing? He's done there? He's just retconned parts of the Silmarillion, right? If you hear references to the Dark Elves, the word that's probably being used is Morbin. It's being translated Dark Elves, though that's not literally what it means, because of its, it's the analog to Moriquendi, and Moriquendi more, more, literally, more literally translates to, to, to Dark Elves. Um, so, Bjarna Soner, on the one hand, yes, Morbin does seem to a, 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 a apply to neutral people. If they're not with us, they're against us kind of thing, it seems, right? And yet, there is that implication, right? But the Avari in general remains secretive, hostile to the Eldar, and untrustworthy. Again, notice where that story comes. It comes from this usage, right? This idea that this, 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 
the fact that this us versus them vocabulary first enters into, you know, Quenya back in the day, Moriquendi, Calaquendi, and then is retained in Cinderin, even after the Cinderin stay behind and become themselves technically dark elves in that they didn't go to Valinor, right? Um, nevertheless, this us versus them um, vocabulary, which has its roots in Calaquendi and Moriquendi, which has its roots in the polemical debates at uh, Quivienne about whether to follow Orame or not, um, remains and becomes this really broadly applicable us versus them language. But the logical conclusion of that is that they see everybody as for us or against us, which implies a hostility on some level between the Sindar and the Avari, even if it doesn't amount to an actual implication that the Avari willingly joined and allied themselves with Morgoth, right? That's not implied. But we're in the neighborhood, right? I mean, they're they're not with us. They're against us. Um, yeah, is this fascinating? So cool. All right. Um, so Edil is the word that gets used generically for elves in Sindarin. Thus they were, they were thus in ordinary speech all Edil, um, that is, all the elves who live in Beleriand. But some belonged to one region and some to another. They were Falathrim, from the seaboard of West Beleriand, that's a word we're familiar with from the published Silmarillion, or Yathrim, from Doriath, that's a word we are not familiar with from the published Silmarillion, the land of the fence, or Yath, or Mithrim, who had gone north from Beleriand, Mithrim, which is a name that we're familiar with from the published Silmarillion, but not applied this way, right? Um, or Mithrim, who had gone north from Beleriand and inhabited the regions about the Great Lake that afterwards bore their name. Why does that lake up in the north have a name that sounds like it's the name of a people? With the Threme ending... Right? Answer? Because it was the name of a people. The Mithrim. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Falathrim, Yathrim, Mithrim. Uh, and this, I think, this seems to me to be an example of Tolkien, um, that sort of tendency to work out in more detail and make things more systematized and consistent um, as he moved forward. Um, but, um, but yes, the, um, the, the Yathrim, the elves of Doriath, like the Falathrim, but not the same. Okay. Um, speaking of uh, making his world more consistent, um, here's his breakdown. Uh, back to the math that we got so very much of in the nature of Middle-earth. According to the Noldorian historians, the proportions out of 144 uh, that when the march began became Avari or Eldar were approximately so. Uh, Minyar, 140. Um, so remember, Minyar, Tatyar, and Nelyar means first, second, and third, right? The first people, the second people, and the third people, as derived from the first, second, and third 
to wake of all of the elves, right? Um, so the total number of Minyar, the total number of first peoples were 14 out of, out of 144. That's the proportion of them, of which zero of them remained Avari and all of them became Eldar. All of them set out on the march. The Tatyar, the second people, who become the Noldor eventually, right? The Minyar become the Vanyar when they get to Middle-earth. The Tatyar become the Noldor. So the Tatyar, the second people, <clears throat> are proportionally 56 out of 144. They are 56 144ths of the, El- of the Elvish people. But of them, they are directly split. Half stayed, half went along. So half of the original Noldor stayed behind at Quivianen. Of the Nelyar, of the third people, exactly 74 144ths of all of the Elvish people, which you will notice is just over half, right? With half of 144 being 72. Um, So 74, just more than 50%. Like a bare majority of the elves were Nelyar, of the third people, who will eventually become many peoples, (laughs) right? Of them, 28 stayed and 46 went. So the majority... Um, almost a two-thirds majority of the third people set out on the march, whereas only half. So of the three groups, by percentage, the Noldor had the lowest participation in the in the migration from Quivienen of all of the peoples. By percentage, it was lowest, right? But of the people on the march, you have 14 144ths first peoples. That's 100% of them. You have 28 144ths, which are Tatyar's second peoples, Noldor, and 46 144ths, uh, which are Nelyar. And now of these, how are those 46 broken up, you ask? Glad you asked. Of those 46 Nelyar, 46 out of 144, Neldar who went, uh, of every 46 uh, Nelyar who set off on the journey, 20 made it to Valinor and 26 remained in Beleriand. So more than half, though not much more than half, stayed behind. And in the end, only 20 out of 74, so a little bit less than a third of the original third people, um, uh, ended up making it, ultimately, to Valinor. Bjarnasoner, I agree. Um, That percentage, the idea that the Teleri of Valinor were that close to equaling in number the Sindar, Nandor all put together, that's that surprises that surprised me too. That did not fit the mental picture I took from, you know, all of my earliest readings of the Silmarillion, right? Like the picture I had in my head did not fit that. Um and I'm I was also surprised by the fifty percent thing. Again, that too didn't fit my mental picture either. Um so I found those proportions really interesting. In the result, the Noldor were the largest clan of elves in Amon while the elves that remained in Middle-earth, right? I mean, again, the proportions uh, 14, 28, 20, right, in the end. 14, uh, you know, of every 144 elves born, right, 44, uh, 14 in, were in Amon, were, uh, you know, 100% of them, but only 14, were Vanyar, 28, were Noldor, 20, were Teleri. 
In the result, the Noldor were the largest clan of elves in Amon, while the elves that remained in Middle-earth, the Moriquendi and the Quenya of Amon, outnumbered the Amonyar by the proportion of 82 to 62. So when you take the Sindar and Nandor, that's 26, and then you take all the Avari, which is another 56. So the Sindar and Nandor are 26, the Avari are 56. That means that the Avari are by far the largest single group of elves. If you take Vanyar, Noldor, Teleri of Amon, Sindar and Nandor put together, and Avari, the Avari outnumber everybody else by at least two to one. That blew my mind a little bit, right? Um, again, I emerged from my early readings of the uh, Silmarillion with the vague idea that the vast majority of elves went with Orime. Some stayed, right? Um, but the idea that the Avari outnumber any other individual group of, um, of elves by two to one, at least, is remarkable. That's pretty remarkable, right? Um, okay, so pretty cool, huh? Now, I'm not going to... Uh, let me say in advance. Um, at the end of The War of the Jewels, we got the um, a, a telling of the story of the, the, the awakening of... Uh, um, you know, one, two, and three, right? The first elves of, of the 144 and everything. We're not, I'm not going to talk about that tonight because we covered that a lot in The Nature of Middle-earth, right? Um, there we have Christopher kind of picking out that one bit out of all of this other stuff that was going on, and we got all a lot of the other stuff, right, in The Nature of Middle-earth. Um, so I'm not going to... Um, uh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to talk about... I'm, 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 we're not going to go over that story because we already we already talked about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, David and Michael, this is in the midst of those discussions. Uh, the, um, when was this written in relation to all the population calculations and the nature of Middle Earth? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is um, this is this is written at the time when he was. Like the fact that he's breaking it down like this, he's thinking in those terms, right? Um, I don't know when, like, is it closer to the beginning or closer to the end of the time when he was doing all those calculations? But it's this is in that zone, right? I, I, I would, um, I'd have to go back in the nature of Middle Earth and look a little bit more closely. You can get the chronology from that a little bit more clearly than we can get it here. But, um, um, yeah, but it's, but it's interesting anyway. I'm not going to talk about that story. I'm not going to be talking about much more about the math, but uh, um, but this was this was definitely a cool bit. All right. Uh, here's here's uh, here's let's um, let's take another pot shot at the uh, at the Noldor here. Um, this is again this is talking about Cinderin. Um, so this is uh, this is a a little comment on the feeling of the Cinder of the Sindar towards the Noldor. This ill feeling descended in part from the bitterness of the debate before the march of the Eldar began, and was no doubt later increased by the machinations of Morgoth. But it also throws some light upon the temperament of the Noldor in general, and of Feanor in particular. Indeed, the Teleri on their side asserted that most of the Noldor in Amon itself were in heart Avari, 
and returned to Middle-earth when they discovered their mistake. They needed room to quarrel in. Ouch. Oh, man. Um, one thing that jumped of all of the things said in this entire part of the book, the thing that jumped out to me most was the repetition of the phrase Avari in heart, or in heart Avari, right? Um, notice how most of the other, of the most of the elves think of the rest of the elves as in heart Avari, right? This is an accusation that comes up multiple times in multiple different directions, right? Um, it's uh, amazing. It's amazing. Um, uh, yeah, hang on. I might be mistaken. I think maybe this isn't about the Sindar. This is about the Teleri. Yes, it's about the Teleri. So it's about the Teleri of Amman, right? Um, who have ill feeling the Kinslaying is, uh, is uh, involved, right, in the ill feeling that they have towards the Noldor. Um, the characterization here, right? The Noldor are in heart of Ari. They, they return to Middle-earth. It's not just that they, you know, they were light elves in heart and then changed their mind. They were fulfilling their destiny. They always really wanted to stay in Middle-earth. It was a mistake for them to have come in the first place, right? Um, and, uh, yeah. They needed room to quarrel in is the, uh, the Parthian shot of this of this paragraph, right? Uh, which is um, tough but fair, tough but fair. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, here's stuff about the Vanyar. Um, though I think it's 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 the Quenya word for Vanyar. Vanyar thus comes from an adjectival derivative. Wanya, from the stem one. Its primary sense seems to have been very similar to English, modern, use of fair with reference to hair and complexion. Though its actual development was the reverse of the English. It meant pale, light-colored, not brown or dark, and its implication of beauty was secondary. In English, the meaning beautiful is primary. From the same stem was derived the name given in Quenya to the Valier Vana, wife of Orome, who was apparently blonde, presumably beautiful as well, but we are told that the primary usage this is so I will um I will not conceal that the number one reason I quoted this was its relevance to our discussion in exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, so remember, we, it's one of the things that we are interested in, that we took an interest in a while back, is Tolkien's use of the word fair. And the question that we were trying to resolve in one or two cases of the use of that word was, what is the primary sense? It can mean both pale, light-colored, not brown or dark, and it can also mean beautiful. Um, in, and in some cases, it can mean both. In uh, how are we to interpret it when it is used? Are we to understand it as being simply descriptive, pale, light-colored, or are we to see it as a as complementary, right? Beautiful. Um, it is interesting um, that uh, 
it is interesting that Tolkien asserts that in English, the mean the meaning beautiful is primary. Beautiful is primary. So the word fair in English means light colored. It doesn't mean beautiful because it means light colored and P.S. light colored things and people are beautiful. It means light colored because it means beautiful and P.S. beautiful things are often pale and light colored, I guess. Um, it's, um, yeah, yeah. Um, what's the link there, Arthur? I don't know. Like, linguistically, I don't know. I don't know how that it has these two associations. I mean, in English, that's clearly true. Why? How did it come that way? I don't know. But Tolkien's assertion is that the primary meaning of fair is beautiful in English, um, in modern English. So, um, uh, there you are. <laughs> there you are. Um, uh, so, how th this helps us in reading The Lord of the Rings, I'm not yet sure, but we'll see if it does. Okay. Um, here's another really fun association. Um, this is in the context of talking about the name Noldor. So he just talked about the name Vanyar, and now he's talking about the name Noldor. And it is, of course, associated, as we've been told in the published Silmarillion, with the word wise, right? So the Noldor were called uh, Gnome or Noldor because, of, because they were wise, right? But here you go. The variant forms of the name, Quenya Noldo, uh, Teleri Goldo, Sindarin Golov, Ngolov, indicate a that primitive Quenya, right? A primitive Quenya original Ngoldo. Ngoldo. This is a derivative of the stem Ngol, knowledge, wisdom, lore. This is seen... Now, again, bear with me for a bit, because there's going to be a big old payoff in just a minute, right? So track with me. This is exactly the kind of passage that I did not usually quote, right? That I didn't usually extract. But I did in this case, because the payoff is huge. Okay. Um, this is seen in Quenya Nyole, long study of any subject. Lore, right? Learning, study. Um, or in Ingole, lore. Ingolmo, lore master. Okay. In Telerin, Gole and Gole had the same senses as in Quenya, that is, those sense of long study of, of any subject or of lore, but were used most often of the special lore possessed by the Noldor. So, um, in Quenya, they use these words, Nole, Ngole, um, you know, to, to, to mean lore, study, in general, right? Um, if, you're, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're studying a subject... You know, you're getting a you're 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 getting a doctorate degree, right? Um, you're um, participating in nyole, right? Long study of of a subject. In Telerin, they use the same word, but they're like 
borrowing it from the Noldor such that the word actually points to them. They use the word gole as well to describe the same thing. But it doesn't just mean to them long study of any subject. It means long study of the kind of stuff the Noldor are always studying. Right? So it's specific to them and their activities. But now look at the next step. In Sindarin, the word ghoul, equivalent of quenya ngole, had less laudatory associations, being used mostly of secret knowledge, especially such as possessed by artificers who made wonderful things. So ghoul, where, so you see the, you see the, see the progression? To the Noldor, <clears throat> nole means study of a subject, academic study of a subject, right? To the Teleri, gole means Noldor studying a subject that we don't care about, but they know about. To the Sindarin, Ghoul means secret knowledge possessed by artificers who made wonderful things. Secret, wondrous knowledge that they have that we don't and that we don't understand. See the step, right? And of course, then there's the one last obvious step that you will have anticipated by the word Ghoul, right? And the word became further darkened by its frequent use in the compound Morgul, black arts, applied to the delusory or perilous arts and knowledge derived from Morgoth. So Morgoth distributes knowledge too, but his arts and knowledge are perilous or delusory, and these are Morgul, black knowledge, dark secret knowledge. Right? Um, which is only a hair's breadth away from that other secret knowledge that we find kind of amazing, but that we also don't really don't understand at all. Right? Those indeed among the Sindar who were unfriendly to the Noldor attributed their supremacy in the arts and lore to their learning from Melkor Morgoth. So in fact, there may be no difference at all between all ghoul might be more ghoul, as far as they know. Because they used to hang out with Morgoth when he was in Valinor. They probably, all those things that they know that we don't know, all those things they can do that we can't do, probably, it's probably all Morgul. Probably all black arts. Stuff that they learned from the enemy. This was a falsehood, coming itself ultimately from Morgoth, though it was not without any foundation as the lies of Morgoth seldom were. But the great gifts of the Noldor did not come from the teachings of Melkor. Feanor, the greatest of them all, never had any dealings with Melkor in Amman, and was his greatest foe. Um, yeah, okay. So, our narrator comes in to defend Feanor, which happens sufficiently infrequently to be noteworthy by all by itself, but that's okay. Um, anyway, you see how... Um, you see how this see how that happens notice also the fundamental um think back to um galadriel and sam right sam wants to see elf magic and galadriel says in that famous line right um uh you know you said you wanted to see magic though i don't rightly understand what you mean by that word um 
uh, you know, this is what your people would call magic, though I don't rightly understand what, what they mean by the word. And they use, they seem to use the same word of the, um, of the, the deceits of the enemy, right? In other words, what Galadriel attributes, her perspective on how hobbits use the word magic, it sounds exactly like this, like the, the, the Sindar... The Sindar and the Hobbits seem exact parallels there. You see? Um, Hobbits... Galadriel doesn't consider what she does magic. She's not comfortable with that word. She doesn't even fully understand what they mean by it. Just as you could easily imagine a Noldo saying to a Sindar... like A, a Sinda, rather. Um, uh, you know... Here I I made this thing, right? Um, you know, here's a palantir, right? Or here's a um, fanorian lamp, or something like that, right? Uh, this is what your people would call ghoul, though I don't rightly understand what they mean by that word. And they seem to use almost exactly the same word of the uh, what was it, delusory or perilous arts of the enemy, right? Um, it's it's almost exactly parallel. Um, that is really, really interesting to me. Um, but, um, anyway, so, um, really, really fun stuff there. And the idea that the, again, if you don't know, if you don't get all of these, um, you know, the, the sort of philological stuff that he's doing here, you would never be able to guess that the ghoul of Morgul, as in Minas Morgul and Morgul Knife, um, is this essentially the same word as, you know, Noldor, right? As like the 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 Nold in uh, in 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 Noldor, um, and that's really fascinating, right? So that is a really fun eye-opening passage. Um, Oh, uh, Alyssa, that word in Old English that means craft with an undertone of... Uh, searu. Searu. Um, the word that in Old English means the craft with an undertone of magic, uh, like Wayland Smithying, I believe. Like, se, se, like Searuman um, is a wise, um, crafty person. Yeah, I, I think Searu is the word that you're thinking of there. Um, yeah, that's where Saruman's name comes from. Um, and that's that's also a, a wisdom word, right? Um, uh, but meaning uh, crafty and, again, possibly magical in, again, in exactly that same way because they have arts and skills that I don't understand and they produce things that I know I could not make and so I'm going to call it magic. I'm going to call it ghoul. Um, and I'm going to look at it suspiciously. Right? Um and um, under cer certain circumstances, I'm going to actively distrust anybody who does it. Like, um, you know, I might call somebody who does it a sorceress, like the sorceress of the Golden Wood, right? Um, <laughs> Emily says that's how I feel about cooking. I understand. I can hear that. I, I don't. I cook a lot myself, so I, um, uh, you know, to me, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, nole. But, uh, but I hear you, right? I hear you. Um, uh, there are plenty of things I feel that way about. Um, uh, sewing. 
like knitting and sewing. I feel that way about knitting and sewing. Um, anybody who can, who did that, that is the thing that seems like magic to me. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, all right, let's keep going. On to humans. Um, in Beleriand, Atan, plural Atani, was the name most used at first. But since for a long time the only men known to the Noldor and Sindar were those of the three houses of the elf friends, this name came specially, became specially associated with them, so that it was seldom in ordinary speech applied to other kinds of men that came later to Beleriand, or that were reported to be dwelling beyond the mountains. The elf friends were sometimes called by the lore masters Nunatani, Sindarin Dunedine, Western men, a term made to match Dunethil, which was a name for all the elves of Beleriand allied in the war. The original reference was to the west of Middle-earth, but the name Nunatani, Dunedain, was later applied solely to the Numenorians, descendants of the Atani, who removed to the far western isle of Numenore. So two things going on here that are interesting, right? One, um, I didn't do the passage about the Dunethil, um, but this was the um, the distinction. It's another us versus them word, right? And follows a similar pattern. Um, the Dunethil, the West, uh, the Western Elves, the West Elves, are us, right? Those of us who are all fighting against Morgoth. Anybody else? Um, they're not Dunethil. Those are Morbin, right? Those are those are strangers. Those are outsiders. Uh, those are Dark Elves. Um, so originally. The word Dunedain, men of the West, Nunatani, um, is made, it's just, it's made in, in imitation, right? They call themselves the Dunethil, the elves of the West, meaning those who are joined. So the humans that join them in the war, you know, they become Kelbin, right? Cal- or Kelbin or Kelbin. Uh, they become us, right? And so therefore, but we're going to note. The word Ethel means elf, so we're not gonna we're not gonna call them Ethel, um, but we are gonna call them Dune, right, um, uh, of the West, to show that they're like us. So this ultimately uh, becomes sort of cemented in the Numenorians, right? Um, uh, descendants of the Atani who removed to the far western isle of Westerness, right, of Numenore. Um, so. There's a sense in which the fact that the Numenorians, <laughs> the fact that Westerness is in the West, is almost an accident of history, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Like, they were called Dunedain before they went out there, right? They weren't called Dunedain. So, why are the Dunedain called the Dunedain? It's not because they're descendants of the Numenorians. The Numenorians themselves are called Dunedain, are called men of the West, not because they happened to live on an island which was pretty darn far to the West. They were called that beforehand, right? They were called that because they were those of us in the West of Beleriand fighting the war against Morgoth. That kind of, not only revision, but almost inversion, right? Where we're taught Dunedain, right? When we first learn the word Dunedain, right? When we learn it with, not when we learn it as Frodo is being reminded of it in the House of Elrond, um, we're told explicitly that it means men of the West with what seems an explicit implication, um, given that uh, 
we're told that, you know, Bilbo tells us that um, Aragorn is called the Dunedon, the Man of the West. Um, and, of course, we've just learned earlier on in, the, in that same chapter um, that Aragorn is a descendant of the Old Kings, right? Is of Numenor. Um, but it turns out that's not what it means. At least that's what it's not what it originally meant. Um, so yeah, Bjorn Sonner, exactly. The terms are narrowing over time. Yes, and JJ, it's right. Of the West is more of a spiritual alignment rather than a geographic descriptor. As I said, accident of history. I mean, it's like, why is Westerness called Westerness? Well, not just because it was by, you know, cardinal direction really far in the West. Uh, again, in a sense, that's an accident. Um, not literally an accident. There's a causal relationship there, right? Um, that it went out towards uh, uh, towards towards Valinor. The geographical location of Valinor in the West is what's what underlies all of this, right? Um, but um, anyway, I, I I thought that was uh, this is again super fun stuff. More fun stuff. Okay, the Sindar had long known the dwarves and had entered into peaceful relations with them, though of trade and exchange of skills rather than of true friendship, before the coming of the exiles. The name in the plural that the dwarves gave to themselves was Khazad, and this the Sindar rendered as they might in the terms of their own speech, giving it the form Khadad, Hathod, or changed to Hathod, changed to Hathod, Hathod, with an H. Hathod, Hathodrim, was the name which they continued to use in actual intercourse with the dwarves. But among themselves, they referred to the dwarves usually as the Naugrim, the stunted folk. Okay, so, the elves called the dwarves. Among themselves, they referred to the dwarves as Naugrim, the stunted folk. But as all of the elves, I believe, could agree that that's rude, and might offend the dwarves. Um, they don't call them Naugrim to their face. To their face, they call them Hathod, or the Hathodrim. Um, and we see that that is, that is a neutral word to describe them because it is derived, it's importing directly as directly as they can. They're borrowing the, 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 the word Hazad. Uh, the dwarves' own name for themselves. And, of course, this also enables us to understand per what, is, uh, what is the elvish name, the old elvish name for Khazad-dûm before it was called Moria, right? It's called Khazad-dûm by the dwarves. It's called the Dwarodelf, uh, you know, in Westron. And in Sindarin, it's called Hathadrond. Right now, you know, I again, I long, I came across that word long before I understood this link. Right, but of course, if you didn't know, you should have known. Right, whenever Tolkien gives multiple names for something like that, they're almost always translations of each other. Right, Hazad Doom, the 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 delvings of the dwarves. You know, Dwarodelf, which is the literal English translation plural dwarf, and place where they dig, right? Big dig of the dwarves. 
Khazad-dûm, Dwarodelf, and so, of course, Hathadrond is exactly the same thing. It just means Dwarodelf in Sindarin, um, with uh, Hathold being the name of the dwarves. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> dwarf dig. Exactly, exactly. On the petty dwarves. Okay. The Eldar did not at first recognize these as incarnates, for they seldom caught sight of them in clear light. They only became aware of their existence, indeed, when they attacked the Eldar by stealth at night, or if they caught them alone in wild places. The Eldar, therefore, thought that they were a kind of cunning two-legged animal living in caves, and they called them Levine Taddile, or simply Taddile, and they hunted them. But after the Eldar had made the acquaintance of the Naugrim, the Taddile were recognized as a variety of dwarves and were left alone. There were then few of them surviving, and they were very wary and too fearful to attack any elf, unless their hiding places were approached too nearly. The Sindar gave them the names Noth- uh, Nogotheg, Dwarflet, or Nogoth Nibin, Petty Dwarf. Um, yeah, pretty awkward. Uh, pretty awkward, David Michael, I, I completely agree. Um, this is an expanded version. We get a reference to this in the published Silmarillion, and this is expanded from that, right? Tolkien's not backing down from this idea. Um, he is not afraid. This is this is the optics here are bad, right? Um, when the Eldar arrived in Beleriand, um, there were indigenous peoples who objected to their presence, um, and the Eldar responded by hunting them down like beasts and almost exterminating them, right? I mean, the optics are bad, right? I think Tolkien's perfectly aware of how bad the optics are here. I don't think he's a, I don't think he's done this. I don't think this is a, this is a, this is a defense. I don't think this is an apologia for the, for the elves. That was, it's, it's, it's an explanation. Why, how did they come to make that mistake? Well, remember they had never met other incarnates at this point, um, so they didn't know that there were that there were other rational creatures. Certainly not like this, right? And yet, um, he is Tolkien is um, he's not only leaving this uh, disgraceful moment um, at the very least tragic, if not actively shameful. Um, uh, you know, incident. It's not. He's not just leaving it there. He's expanding on it, right? He's 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 telling us more about it than he'd ever mentioned before about this subject. Um, yeah, two-legged animal. That's Levine Toddale. Um, so does Toddale literally mean two legs? So like they they called them bipeds. Is what is is what they named them, um, yeah. The bipeds, okay. Yeah, right. Levine is yeah, literally yes. Todd Dale is biped, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Now again, as soon as they realized their mistake, they stopped. Well, that's good, right? Good, good, good to hear that at least, right? Um, 
glad to hear that they stopped, that they don't hunt them like beasts anymore. Oh, wait, now I'm quoting Hanburi Han, uh, because apparently this happened again, right, with the Druidine later on. Um, yeah. It's, um, it, and, and that's an interesting parallel, too, right? I don't want to read too far into that, but the same dynamic is clearly present there. Um, more on the petty dwarves. The great dwarves despised the petty dwarves, who were, it is said, descendants of dwarves who had left or been driven out of the out from the communities, that is, you know, the dwarf holds, being deformed or undersized or slothful and rebellious. But they still acknowledged their kinship and resented any injuries done to them. Indeed, it was one of their grievances against the Eldar that they had hunted and slain their lesser kin, who had settled in Beleriand before the elves came there. This grievance was set aside when treaties were made between the dwarves and the Sindar, in consideration of the plea that the petty dwarves had never declared themselves to the Eldar, nor presented any claims to land or habitations, but had at once attacked the newcomers in darkness and ambush. But the grievance still smoldered, as was later seen in the case of Meme, the only petty dwarf who played a memorable part in the annals of Beleriand. Well, memorable to the elves, anyway, right? Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, yep, okay. So, I mo I I don't have too much to say about this. I mostly wanted to just kind of get his picture of the petty dwarves here and this relationship with the dwarves that the great dwarves, as he calls them, which, by the way, Tolkien's opposition of the phrase great dwarves to the hyphenated phrase petty dwarves makes it pretty clear um, what he means by the word petty. We talked about this before, right? Why petty in what sense? petty. Um, it just, it means it's the opposite of great. Small. Lesser. The lesser dwarves. Um, which he implies is literal. That is, is physiological. They are lesser. Which is a word that he uses later in the paragraph, right? Um, being deformed or undersized. They were driven out. They left or were driven out of the communities because they were deformed or undersized. So probably literally smaller than the great dwarves. But it's also fairly clear that um, there is a uh, there's clearly a dimension of value here in those adjectives, great and petty as are being used here. It doesn't just mean big and small um, in some kind of neutral sense. Um, petty is usually when it's used in this sense that is not in the sense in which the only sense in which the word really survives in modern usage uh, like you're being petty right um, though again you, you think about that and the roots of that what are you being when you're being petty you're being small you're being small minded right um, yeah yeah um, and uh uh, 
but any but in any case like things like uh, a petty king right we talked about this before a petty king it just means a king of a tiny little kingdom um but there is a there is a, like a a petty king doesn't just have a smaller realm like they're lesser they're of lesser much lesser importance than other great kings right of large realms um yeah so um so again there's it's it doesn't only mean small um it certainly has the uh um uh the sense of um it isn't necessarily an insult but there's a there's a there, there's a value dynamic uh, to those to those words, and yes, uh, Bjarnason owner, I don't want to leave that behind. Driven out because they were deformed or undersized, driven out because they were slothful and rebellious. I mean, okay, like I guess it's a kind of, you know, you know, an alternative to capital punishment. I guess like those who were those slothful. It's a little harsh, but whatever. I mean, you know, I'm not going to judge. I guess like it's their values. So, um, sure, okay, I guess we can see those things. Um, but, um, um, it's, but deformed and undersized, right? Um, it does sound almost, um, almost eugenic, right? Um, that they would kick out anybody who was deformed or undersized. I agree. Bjornason or the optics there are not good either, right? That's awkward. The thing that I would emphasize here, um, the thing that I would emphasize here is sometimes people will talk about Tolkien and Tolkien's world you know, the whole, like, it's all black and white, no shades of gray thing. Um, you know, as if, like, all the elves are the greatest thing ever, right? And the Noldor are the greatest of the elves, right? And, uh, like, oh, and the door, they're all heroic, right? I mean, like, people will say things, like, will say silly things like this, that, you know, Tolkien did not have a nuance, that, you know, he... Um, doesn't have a nuanced view of these things. That's obviously ridiculous to anyone who's read the stories. But notice how even in his world building here, he's not he's not creating a rom like a, a nostalgic like romantic history for his peoples. He's including really awkward bits. Right? These are not good looks. I don't think that Tolkien thought these were good looks. That the Sindar hunted the petty dwarves. That the dwarves exiled people for being deformed or undersized, right? You're too you're too short, right? So we're banishing you from the kingdom? I mean, yikes. From the community, more importantly, which seems like a dwarvish word in that context. Um uh that's um I think it's meant to be to look sketchy. He's including lots of sketchy bits here. Just as we get these sketchy bits, even the fact, like even this division, even the Moraquendi Calaquendi thing, even the the like polemics of the of the debates at Quivienen is not a good look, right? Um, that they have all of these um, all of these problems. Yeah, Scott, I totally agree. He's certainly not 
whitewashing um, any of these folks. We're getting all of this. This is there's ugly stuff here, and I certainly do not think that Tolkien doesn't think this stuff is ugly. Like this is this is not Tolkien endorsing these practices. Um, you know, any more than he's endorsing the kinslaying or even endorsing the arrogance of the Noldor, right? Again, I, I, I certainly do not think that he is endorsing this stuff or there's any reason for us to th- believe that he is endorsing them. That's the point, I think. That's one of the things that's, that's, um, that's interesting about the world that he's building here. Okay. Let's talk about the orcs. In the lore of the Blessed Realm, the Quenya Urko naturally seldom occurs except in tales of the ancient days and the march. Uh, of course, why does it never occur? Well, because orcs had mostly not been invented yet, right? Uh, so, um, yeah, when they didn't even know that orcs existed, so there's a good reason why they never used the word orc in the Blessed Realm. Except in tales of the ancient... The word is still used in ancient... In tale, tales of the ancient days and the march, and then is vague in meaning, referring to anything that caused fear to the elves, any dubious shape or shadow, or prowling creature. Right? So this is like the ultimate etymology of the word orc. They had a word for unknown scary things. Anything that causes fear, they called an urko. In Sindarin, the word survives, right? Urug has a similar use. It might indeed be translated bogey. Vague, scary thing. Right? Vague, scary thing that we don't really know what it is. But the form orc seems at once to have been applied to the orcs as soon as they appeared. And orc, plural irk, class plural orkoth, remained the regular name for these creatures in Sindarin afterwards. Um, so irk is literally the, is just the plural of orc, right? Which has almost the same form um, as the English word orc. So when they, when the Sindar meet the orcs, because they're the first elves to meet the orcs, when the Sindar meet the orcs, they adapt the word Urug, Urko, which comes from Quenya Urko, this word for something vaguely scary that we don't know, that we don't know about, right? They adapt it. They don't just use it. They adapt it because it's no longer a bogey, right? Now it's a thing, um, uh, but it becomes this new, this new word. Um, okay, more. The form in Adunayak, Urku, Urku, may be direct from Quenya or Sindarin, and this form underlies the words for orc in the languages of men in the Northwest in the Second and Third Ages. So the Westron word Urk, Urku, uh, comes from Adunayak, which might come directly from Quenya or Sindarin. The orcs themselves adopted it, for the fact that it referred to terror and detestation delighted them. Oh, we are fearful, hateful things? Love it! We're going to call ourselves that. The word Uruk that occurs in the black speech, devised, it is said, by Sauron to serve as a lingua franca for his subjects, was probably borrowed by him from the elvish tongues of earlier times. It referred, however, specifically to the trained and disciplined orcs of the regiments of Mordor. Lesser breeds seem to have been called Snaga. So there you go. That's why the orc warrior calls this the tracker orc Snaga uh, in The Return of the King. Because he's not an orc. He's a Snaga. Totally different breed. Um, all right. Um, yes. So, 
Bjarnasonar, he was suggesting that Urug was an early loan from Quenya. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, yep. Um, okay. More. The Eldar had many other names for the orcs, but most of these were kennings, descriptive terms of occasional use. One was, however, in frequent use in Sindarin, more often than Orkoth. So the Orkoth means the orc people, right? Um, the, um, the orc horde. Uh, but more often than Orkoth, the general name for orcs as a race that appears in the annals was Glamhoth. Glam meant din, uproar, the confused yelling and bellowing of beasts. So that Glamhoth, in origin, meant more or less the yelling horde, the din horde, I love that, uh, with reference to the horrible clamor of the orcs in battle or when in pursuit. They could be stealthy enough at need. But Glamhoth became so firmly associated with orcs that glam alone could be used of any body of orcs, and a singular form was made from it, glamog. Compare the name of the sword, Glamdring. So Glamdring means foe hammer. It's translated foe hammer, right? Enemy beater, right? Beater. Um, it, it's translated foe hammer from Glamdring, right? Okay. Um, but Glam, so it means foe in that we define the Glam, a, a Glamog, right? Um, an orc. Orcs are the enemy, right? Especially to the people who made Beater and Biter, obviously. So, um, so therefore, we'll just, instead of saying the, or, you know, like Orc Dring, we already used Orc in the other one anyway, so instead of calling it Orc Dring, we call it Glam Dring, because Glam is a synonym. It means enemy, it means foe, it means Orc, right? But of course, literally, it, it means din. It's literally the din hammer, right? You beat, you beat noise, uh, with with Glamdring, right? Um, uh, that sort of chain of associations is uh, is uh, is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> you named your last D and D character Glamhoth. That's that's a uh, um, that's a uh, it's a pretty good name. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Note, he says at the end of this, Tolkien not being able to. Uh, he, he, now he wants to connect it to English. Watch how this works. I love this. The word used in translation of Quenya Urko, Sindarin Orch, is Orc. That is the English word, Orc. But that is because of the similarity of the ancient English word Orc, evil spirit or bogey, to the Elvish words. There is possibly no connection between them. The English word is now generally supposed to be derived from Latin orcus, which means death or the god of death. Um, okay, okay. Um, you've got to love this. You've got you, you've got to love this, right? So, okay, so first of all, first notice that the Old English word orc. So the word orc appears in, 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 in Old English. You can find it in Beowulf. Um, and it's unclear what it means. Evil spirit, demon. It seems to mean vaguely something shadowy and scary that we're afraid of and we don't know what it is. Right? In other words, it is exactly the, the 
as far as we can tell, what the word orc in Old English meant was exactly what the Quenya, the old Quenya Urko, um, or not the Sindarin Orch, but the Sindarin Urug, meant bogey, right? Uncertain. So he takes the concept of orc from Old English, and he says that's what the, the word Urko originally meant. Right, but then it com- becomes over time. It becomes more specified over time, until it means specifically an orc, right? One of the Glamhoth, the orcs of Morgoth. Um, so that's why he choose. So he chooses to use the English word orc, the Anglo-Saxon word orc, right? The old English word orc. Um, so you see, kind of like the circle that's going on here. And remember, this is all to explain why the word orc has been used in translation of the Sindarin orc or the Quenya Urko. This is not an explanation of why he chose that English word to describe these creatures that he made up, right? Nor is it an explanation of why the Quenya word urko or the Sindarin word orc looks so similar to the Old English word orc, which means evil spirit or bogey, right? Um, it's, um, it's, it's, anyway, like, again, you see how he's flipped it, right? How he's flipped it around. And, uh, and the thing is, like, you can't be sure. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be sure exactly which direction it actually went in his mind. Um, is it possible that the concept of the of the Quenya and Sindar, and uh, Sindarin words emerged in his mind independently, like, you know, came from other de- other roots and derivations, um, uh, and uh, was independent of the Old English word orc. It's conceivable, but um, not um, not really sure. Not really sure if I believe that. But in any case, like just the the sort of. I would say the rich circularity of all this is, I find, entirely delightful. Okay, um, this is a long passage, but I couldn't help but quote it all, so let's read it. The dwarves, indeed, as later became known, had a far more elaborate and organized system, that is, an organized system of gesture language. Elves had set gestures that communicated things. Remember, we got more about this in uh, The Nature of Middle-earth, too. We did not get this, however. The dwarves, indeed, as later became known, had a far more elaborate and organized system. They possessed, in fact, a secondary tenguesta of feet of gestures, concurrent with their spoken language, which they began to learn almost as soon as they began learning to speak. So while a dwarf is talking, they're also gesturing with their hands at the same time. Okay. It should be said, rather, that they possessed a number of such gesture codes, for unlike their spoken language, which remained astonishingly uniform and unchanged both in time and in locality, their gesture codes varied greatly from community to community. And they were differently employed, not for communication at a distance, for the dwarves were short-sighted, but for secrecy and the exclusion of strangers. Okay, so the dwarves all have this um, the dwarves all have this finger language, right? This gesture language that they use. But they don't use it in order to communicate at a distance or even to communicate silently, necessarily. 
It's just they use it at the same time that they're speaking for secrecy and exclusion of strangers. They use it in order to make themselves harder to understand more. Okay, the component sign elements of any such code were often so slight and so swift that they could hardly be detected, still less interpreted by uninitiated onlookers. As the Eldar eventually discovered in their dealings with the Naugrim, they could speak with their voices, but at the same time by gesture convey to their own folk modifications of what was being said. So they can say a thing but then there's a gesture that accompanies the thing, which might mean something like, I actually mean the opposite of what I'm saying right now. Or, I've said this, um, but this is only true in one particular sense and not in another sense. And you, who know the gesture that I'm speaking, will therefore be able to, in to interpret what I'm saying correctly, whereas the stupid elves who don't, who may might understand my language but don't understand my gestures will falsely interpret what I've said, right? Um, come on, that's pretty cool, right? That is pretty cool. But okay, but uh, but there's um, there's still more. Or they could stand silent, considering some proposition, and yet confer among themselves meanwhile. So that is also possible. Silent speaking is also possible. Um, this gesture language, or as they call it, Iglishmek, uh, the dwarves were no more eager to teach than their own tongue. But they understood and respected the disinterested desire for knowledge, and some of the later Noldoran lore masters were allowed to learn enough of both their Lambe, Aglab, or their Iglishmek to understand their systems. Enough of their language. And so at the end of the day, there were some who were let in. Why? Because they respected the disinterested desire for knowledge. They became convinced eventually that some of these Noldor nutcases, in fact, like these academic nutcases, were in fact just so genuinely passionate about philology that they weren't trying to learn their secrets for any reason other than just to because they loved so much how language worked. And so in the end, the dwarves were like, respect, we'll teach you that. Um, and I think that's really, I think that's really fun. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. They weren't trying to learn it to get a better deal while training, while trading. Exactly, exactly. Um, this is such a fascinating, um, like extra, di extra dimension, right? Not just to, to the the secrecy of dwarves, but the cunning of dwarves. Right, that they were not only just gonna clam up and not tell you things or not teach you their language or something like that. I mean, that's true too. But they, it's not just that they would do that. It's that they had these really devious ways of misleading you on purpose. Even if you did. Even once you learned their language. They could honestly teach you their language and yet still deceive, potentially, while doing it. Right? Um, all in a sense in the greater interest of, like, you know, secrecy. Uh, right? Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, um, again, note, by the way, is this necessarily particularly f flattering of the dwarves? Not necessarily, right? Like, they were really devious and cunning and knew lots and lots of ways to deceive or mislead other people um, and went out of their way to do so. That's not an awesome look, honestly, in and of itself. But again, that's what um, is... Um, uh, 
is certainly we see this again. We see this all over the place, right? Nobody comes out of this of this whole section smelling like roses, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Though Feanor, after the days of his first youth, took no more active part in linguistic lore and inquiry, he is credited by, tr by tradition with the foundation of a school of Lamengolmor, or lore masters of tongues, to carry on this work. This continued in existence among the Noldor, even through the, rigorous and the rigors and disasters of the flight from Amman and the wars in Beleriand, and it survived indeed to return to Eresea. Of the school... Uh, first of all, you've got to love that, right? So first of all, Feanor, child prodigy, makes up Tengwar, and then is like, yeah, but I, I'm I'm retiring. I'm done with languages. I'm done with linguistics. Which just shows you that Feanor was going bad from the beginning, right? The fact that Feanor was like, eh, I'm over languages. On to bigger and better things. There's your first red flag in Fe about Feanor's future career, isn't it? Um, however, he does, yeah, onto technology instead, David Michael, exactly. That's got to be an upgrade, right? Um, but he founds a school of philologists, which, um, founds and inspires a school of philologists. And this idea, this continued in existence among the Noldor, even through the rigors and disasters of the flight from Amman. So you've got the Lom, the, the Laman Golmor. You know, still holding like linguistic symposia on the Helcaraxa, right? And uh, you know, in the uh, you know in the refugee camps uh, on the you know mountain passes out of Gondolin uh, and everything else, right? Um, that's um, it's it's a there's a certain the kind of purity of this as a an imaginative kind of um, escape for Tolkien, right? Uh, there's a there's a kind of a, um, this is like a second cousin to a self-insertion passage, almost, right? Um, for Tolkien. Um, uh, fascinating. Okay. Of the school, the most eminent member after the founder was, or still is, Pengaloth, an elf of mixed Sindarin and Noldoran ancestry, born in Nevrast, who lived in Gondolin from its foundation. He wrote both in Sindarin and in Quenya. He was one of the survivors of the destruction of Gondolin, from which he rescued a few ancient writings and some of his own copies, compilations, and commentaries. It is due to this, and to his prodigious memory, that much of the knowledge of the Elder Days was preserved. Here's our frame, right? As Tolkien continues to elaborate his world-building and think all of these things through, he is not forgetting his frame. The character of Pengalod, or Pengalod, as he was called earlier, are, um, is becoming more and not less refined, right? The, uh, this, this path of um, the survival of the tales, right? Um, that, we, that the published Silmarillion ultimately comes from the writings of Pengalod um, is, is clearly... Um, is clearly... Uh, uh, not fading, but crystallizing, I think, in Tolkien's imagination here. 
More, more about Pengoat. All that has here been said concerning the Elvish names and their origins, and concerning the views of the older lore masters, is derived directly or indirectly from Pengaloth. For before the overthrow of Morgoth and the ruin of Beleriand, he collected much material among the survivors of the wars at Syrian's mouth concerning languages and gesture systems with which, owing to the isolation of Gondolin, he had not before had any direct acquaintance. Pengaloth is said to have remained in Middle-earth until far into the Second Age for the furtherance of his inquiries, and for a while to have dwelt among the dwarves of Casarondo, Casadum. But when the shadow of Sauron fell upon Eriador, he left Middle-earth, the last of the Lomben Golmar, and sailed to Eresea, where maybe he still, he still abides. Um, come on. First of all, don't you love this glimpse of that history? Um, my favorite sentence here. For before the overthrow of Morgoth and the ruin of Beleriand, he collected much material among the survivors of the wars at Syrian's mouth concerning languages and gesture systems, with which, owing to the isolation of Gondolin, he had not before had any direct acquaintance. So on the one hand, the fact that Pengaloth comes from Gondolin means that he is an excellent source of Valinorian lore, right? Because, of course, uh, Turgon is one of the elves who you know, remembers most back to, thinks most back to, you know, is, 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 you know, trying to build his little imitation, imitation, you know, Tyrion upon Tunai here in Middle-earth, right? He's one of the most Valinor-oriented of all of the Noldor in Beleriand, and Pengoad is right there, right, in the heart of, like, uh, you know, new Tyrion uh, there. So, so he has this connection to the ancient histories and those old traditions, but being in Gondolin has its downside, right? I mean, Gondolin's great and everything, but it's so isolated. You just don't get a chance to do much field work in Gondolin, right? I mean, here's poor Pengaloth pining away for the opportunity to get to mix with more people and learn more languages. It's, it's almost like, for Pengaloth at least, there's like a silver lining of the fall of Gondolin, right? We, the fall of Gondolin is, is like nothing but a tragedy most of the time. But, um, but Pengalot can see the bright side, right? Uh, the, the silver lining of the, of the fall of Gondolin is that he ends up in the mouth of Syrian, where there are not only non-Gondolindrim, there's everyone, right? Rem remnants of the elves from every part of Beleriand who have mingled with lots of different people in all of the years that he's been in Gondolin. Oh my goodness, he can learn so much just there in the camp, right? Without having to go too far. Um, this is uh, so much fun. Yeah, men there too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, 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 were, uh, there were humans also, right? So this image of Pengaloth scurrying around, you know, the, 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 the havens of Balar and stuff, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, frantically or at least fervidly uh, interviewing, uh, you know, person after person and getting all of this stuff. I mean, it's um, it's just I, like I said, Pengaloth is um, it's not exactly a self-insertion, you know, a, a self-insertion um, uh, 
uh, on um, on on Tolkien's part, but but it's 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 like a second cousin. It's like his fantasy self-insertion, right? Um, if there's a if there's a person that Tolkien likes to imagine himself being, um, uh, if there's a fantasy projection of himself into uh, into Middle Earth history, it's totally Pingala, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is for sure who he would cosplay as, Scott. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's exactly right. Um, yep, yep. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, last notes, and we don't have uh, uh, we don't have much more on this. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into this. Um, is the note that so you may remember that there were times when Tolkien was toying with the idea that the Valar had no language at all. Um, that they had no language, they just communicated telepathically with each other um, until they met the elves. And then the elves were speaking, they invented language first. And then the Eldar adopted their language so that the original language of the elves was the proto-language of the world. Um, He toyed with that idea. Um, But you'll notice that here he has decided to the contrary. He has decided that, that Valoran is a thing, right? The Valar have a language, um, and they had a language before they met the elves. Why did they have a language before they met the elves? Well, this tells you something important about Tolkien's view of language. Why? What's? Do you remember Tolkien's answer to the question? Why would the Valar have made a language for themselves before they met the elves, before they met incarnates that they had to communicate with? who couldn't just communicate with them telepathically completely as they could, right? Why would they invent a language? Because they had bodies, is Tolkien's answer. That if you have a physical body, Tolkien considers it a natural, an inescapable expression of being incarnate that you're going to develop language and use language. That no one can be an incarnate and not use language. Like, it's just, it just, it's, it's part of the package. It's part of the package. Um, and, um, and so, since they had already taken physical form before they met the elves, they had already developed a language of their own, which almost none of the elves learn which is shocking, because the elves love languages, and were very quick to learn languages. But very few of the elves could speak even halting Valoran, we're told. And most couldn't even do that. Why? Well, in part, um, in part, um, because the, the Valar were speaking in their language to them all the time, so they didn't hear it much. But he also says that the 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 phonetic patterns of Valoran were so alien and even unpleasant to the elves. There, it was Valoran is such a weird language. The elves didn't get it, and they didn't like it. And so, um, Bjarnasoner, I agree that it is fascinating that Tolkien, very intentionally, as you say, makes Valoran not match his own phonoesthetic preferences. Yes. Why does he do Elvish languages the way that he does? Why did he choose Welsh and Finnish as the two basic models 
phonetic models uh, for his two languages because he liked them, because he loved how they sounded. Um, and so he, it was, he was very much playing to his own phonoaesthetic tastes there. And so, yes, the logical extension of this is that he imagines that what is literally the language of the gods um, is a language that he, Tolkien himself, didn't, wouldn't like because he shared Elvish tastes when it came to languages. Um, and that's, that's interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Beyond Center says, uh, to be fair, the, um, uh, the Valoran we see is still fairly European in flavor. Yes. Though don't forget, he says that a lot of those are probably colored by Quenya. They're not like perfectly transmitted Valoran necessarily. Um, so, you know, that's, that, that influences it. Um, I, 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 what I imagine, and again, it, you know, I may not be getting it perfectly, but what I imagine here is that, um, he is, that the language, if you actually heard two of the Valar speaking to each other in Valoran, it's not just, you wouldn't be able to understand it. It would, it would like, I don't know, might even barely sound like language to you, right? It's really, really odd. It's really, really strange. Um, uh, the alienness of the guy, and and be repellent. Yeah, which to the elves it was repellent, right? They disliked it. Um, they didn't want to learn it. And um, again, that is uh, that's a fascinating move. You know, there's a sense in which even the Valar are not being idealized here, right? Their language is not being described as Tolkien the philologist as like the ultimate in beauty, right? The 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 Valoran language is the quintessence of language. It is the thing which, if you were to hear it, I can't tell you what it is, but if you were to hear it, it would like transport you, you know, into... No, that's not what it's like at all. If you heard it, you'd be like, oh, stop. You're hurting me over here, right? Um, and that is a... Um, that is a fascinating way for him to picture like from a world building standpoint that's that's i think that says a lot and in my mind it seems to me not unrelated to the fact that all of these people <laughs> noldor sindar dwarves humans are all pretty clearly pretty messed up from the beginning right um i said nobody comes out smelling like roses in a sense even the valar don't but there are some who smell persistently less like roses than other people, and Feanor is one of those people. Few of the Eldar ever learned to speak Valoran, even haltingly. Among the people as a whole, only a small number of words or names became widely known. Feanor, indeed, before the growth of his discontent, is said to have learned more of this tongue than any others before his time. And his knowledge must at any rate have far surpassed the little that is now recorded. But what he knew he kept to himself, and he refused to transmit it even to the Lomben Gulmor because of his quarrel with the Valar. And if that doesn't show you that he's already going bad, right, that he wouldn't even explain any Valoran to the philologists of the philology school that he founded out of pettiness? Here he's being petty, he's being small here too. 
right? Out of out of resentment to take this kind of linguistic revenge, which harms not the Valar, but only the philologists who want to understand how language works, right? I mean, could you imagine what Tolkien would think if he knew somebody who actually like spoke fluent Gothic, but who wouldn't tell him any because he hated the Goths, <laughs> right? Like, come on now, that's not okay. That is not okay. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, Arthur, that's kind of the irony, right? Feanor is the greatest of all the elves. He is the most, he is, he has the most superlatives. He is the superlative, superlative elf. He has more superlatives. He has the most superlatives of any elf, right? He is the greatest elf in history and is very petty. He is the pettiest of all of the dwarves, Aranas. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and um, again, that's, that is, that is, that is fascinating. Um, in its own way, this, this is, um, this feels like one of the most damning things Tolkien ever said about Fanor, right? Um, I mean, the kinslaying was pretty bad, but this, that's inexcusable, <laughs> right? That is completely inexcusable. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the guy who knew linguistic secrets that he would not share with other linguistic scholars just because he was a jerk, right? But guess what? That's it. We're done. I'm done. I'm done. There's more that we could have talked about, but um, this was a large selection. And now that I've finished, I will tell you 23 slides we did tonight. How about that? Um, so, yes, thank you very much for joining me for our discussion of uh, the, uh, the, the War of the Jewels here uh, this um, this week and for this whole session. We're now done with our discussion of the War of the Jewels. Tune in on the 20th of September 2023 when we begin our discussion of Till We Have Faces, which I am so excited to do. Um, so get your copy of Till We Have Faces and let's, uh, let's get ready to discuss that together in a few weeks. Thanks, everybody. And uh, I look forward to, to, to talking with you in a few weeks. Oh, um, read... Read, read the first few chapters. Um, I didn't, sorry, I didn't, I forgot to um, make a specific reading assignment. For, I'm looking at my shelf to see if it's an arm's reach, and it is not my copy of Till We Have Faces. Uh, so um, just read, uh, read the first few chapters. We're going we're gonna to do some general introduction um, and then uh, start at the beginning of the book, but I don't expect to get deep into it, um, a very, a, a large number of pages into it. Um, uh, next, uh, uh, next, next time. Um, yes. Oh yes. And don't forget that, um, uh, one last, one final, final note. Um, and that is that, uh, we are, Signum is at a very, Signum University, very important time. We are coming to the last phase of our application process for accreditation. Don't know for sure that we will receive accreditation at the end of this process. I don't know what's going to happen, um, but we're coming up on our final evaluation. We really need help. It would be awesome. We're trying to raise money to help us to cover the very large fees at the end of the accreditation, you know, to take us through the whole end of the accreditation process. Um, so if you could uh, go to signumuniversity.org, go to the support us menu on the far right, uh, and you will see the uh, the summer 23 appeal. Uh, that's to support our 
our uh, our our credentialing process here. You can make a donation in either that or the do- the regular donate page. But uh, if you can help out, we'd really appreciate it. Many thanks to the generous folks who have already helped and supported us. So thanks very much. And I will see you guys in a few weeks. Bye now. <laughs>